0: My vision is a future for humanity where we'll be completely free to pursue activities outside of our planet. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin.
1: Oh yeah baby Franklin. Chang Diaz not the Jamie we
0: all talk about that's a hell of a first name
1: yeah well of course we've uh, we he was our astronaut of the week quite yeah. a long time ago i don't know what episode it was but i do remember talking about him how prolific is he well he's been on on sts 61 34 46 60 75 91 111 that's that's a lot of space Yeah, but flight. this
0: is what happens when your first name is Franklin and you're a Costa Rican Chinese-American astronaut and physicist.
1: How would you like them apples? And the inventor of the variable-specific impulse magnetoplasma rocket. Yeah, but who hasn't done that? Or Vazimir, which oh. we've talked about uh, several times because it might be the way to get around the solar system.
0: I'd like an On This Day, please.
1: It's Franklin Chang Diaz's birthday. Oh, what?
0: Happy birthday, Franklin.
1: This is another of his quotes. He says, for decades, people have known the chemical propulsion approach to space travel. is really isn't going to get us that far. Chemical propulsion is essentially the horse and cart approach. I like it. Old school. Well, new school. I would new, say. new and old school. He is both old space and new space. Yeah, man. Do you know a little bit of a sadder one, this one, oh. on this day? on this day in 1991 go on we're talking about the fifth uh, the 5th of april of course there was a plane crash in, in, near georgia in brunswick right that killed 23 people including senator john tower and sts 33 the space shuttle the one before franklin chang diaz's Sonny carter oof astronaut Sonny carter died that's in that one that's not good and today would would have been the birthday of my old lunch. Well, I had supper with Donald Lyndon Bell a few years ago. And of course, he died last year. We we mentioned this on the podcast. And he was an amazing astrophysicist and astronomer. Absolutely was. In the, in the field of black holes. And it's his birthday today, or would have been his birthday today. But I, I wish to celebrate it. Happy birthday, Donald Lyndon Bell. Happy birthday. You know what? Last week we were... Maybe possibly being a little bit harsh about the NASA announcement. Yeah, we were. Going back to the moon for 2024. Mm. It's quite funny. I listened to the much more optimistic version by Anthony on the on, uh, main engine cutoff podcast. Brydensein actually reiterated this. He actually sort of said, this is a big change and it comes straight from the top. It's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And I agree with that. It but is. I, I'm, sli- I'm slightly less convinced I think because for me it seems like the whole thing is slightly less focused now because they you know they took a couple a few weeks ago we were talking about how um, they were sort of talking about using commercial spacecraft to do the job of SLS for the first few missions and they've completely rode back on that now they've realised it's impossible and it's for me it's like they're. They're kind of thinking out loud. It's like they're doing this thinking in public at the moment where they're just going, well, can we do this? Well, let's just say it out loud and see if it's possible. And and it didn't it only took a week for the for that for that one to unravel. And you wonder how long it will take for this one to unravel. Because i are sort of saying, by any means necessary. And and Bridenstein's the interesting thing that Bridenstein's been talking about this week is that you could you could use a falcon heavy using a united launch alliance upper stage mm. yeah. <laughs> which 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 uh, to to get to the moon that's that that would be feasible that, that you've got enough throw as you like to get to to get the orion capsule to the moon so the, the boss has been thinking about it but uh, Gersten Meyer the the head of human spaceflight at nasa is totally unconvinced mm. because you know, well it's really hard to integrate Orion with the Falcon Heavy, particularly considering Falcon Heavy is horizontal when you're putting it all together, and then you've got to put the Orion on top. that'll do it uh, and then fuel it in a vertical position that that's difficult. and then and then you've got to put this much bigger fairing on the Falcon Heavy that puts this massive stress on the on the on these two ridiculous side boosters that that it has mm. so yeah it's left you know, a bit of a sour taste in your mouth isn't it matt it's not it's not a sour taste it's ex- it's really exciting it's really exciting but. don't get me wrong but but it's it's like they're thinking out loud and putting all these things in and i think that makes it less focused it would have been better if they'd been having these chats and looking at this sort of stuff behind closed doors and saying god yeah this is possible Here's, here's a bunch of options that we're now looking at, rather than going, yeah, let's go to the moon by 2024 and let's hope somehow that, that there's an option for that to actually happen. Mm. At the moment, we don't have a rocket that will get us there. We, we, we actually genuinely don't even have a rocket that will get us there. We, and we don't know what rocket it's going to be. We don't know whether SLS will be ready on time. We don't know whether Falcon Heavy would actually work. We don't even have the contracts out to start designing the lunar lander. And you heard me right, designing it, not building it. Designing this it is the key word, yes. But my biggest one, my biggest one is we don't even know why we're going there. What's the mission? Mm. What's the mission? It can't be just to put feet back on the moon. No. Can it?
0: It's not, like we said last um, week, it's not going to be playing golf again.
1: Yeah. So. So what's the mission? What is actually the mission? That would be much more exciting for me if we, if we said, right, this, this is the mission. And even more obvious is the fact that they, the, the, the Lunar Gateway is being talked about less. So is that, has that gone off the table now? It seems to me that there's more confusion. It's less focused. And that cannot be a good thing when it comes to space exploration. A lack of focus. That's the, the especially that worked, for the
0: people involved in the bit, for the construction and design. They need to know but yeah, that ma- they're doing this for a reason.
1: Yeah, I I would imagine that that be working at Boeing and working at NASA and working at SpaceX must be a very weird time at the moment because it's both exciting and stressful. Because it's like it's like at the it, It's like all the cards have been thrown up in the air. It's like, well, where's it going to land? It's a little bit like being a co-host of the
0: Interplanetary Podcast. Exciting and stressful. I don't think you've said anything.
1: (laughs) Such a fine analogy ever. Good luck to them. Uh, I did notice that the members of the House Science Committee Mm. uh, were also sceptical of the crash programme to get humans to the moon by 2024. Uh, uh, but uh, Jim Bridenstine hit back and said, don't worry, I'm going to have the costs of the accelerated programme ready for the middle of the month. So we'll see how Jim Bridenstine, what the kind of new request for budget is there. So interesting times, interesting times. I've got my calculator at the ready. A couple of weeks ago, Jamie, we, we mentioned that Starliner was going to be delayed, the test launch we did. Starliner. What's the latest? Uh, uh, well, the latest is that that has been confirmed oh. due to congestion of Atlas rockets on the launch pad. It's so, not like the Gatwick runway. I mean... But there we go. Delayed till August. But it does mean that they still have just about enough time to achieve a 2019 crewed launch. Which would, what, be four or five years late? I think it might be. Uh, which which doesn't bode well for getting to the moon for 2024, does it?
0: Ah, this is your pilot speaking aboard the Starliner. We have a few passenger planes ahead of us and uh, we'll be right on our way as soon as possible. Thank you for your patience.
1: Did you know that it was Chuck Yeager that invented that way of talking? Was it? Yeah, Chuck Yeager kind of is like really influenced um, pilots, uh, to talk exactly like that, that was kind of, that's where that came from, Chuck Yeager. That's quite interesting. I like the way it's almost, it's quite passive aggressive
0: when they say thank you for your patience because they're assuming that <laughs> that you're being patient with them, aren't they? You better be patient and I'm thanking you for being patient, but if you're not patient, screw you. It's like when you get asked for money by people who say thank you in advance for your kind, generous donation
1: that's like you in your uh, marathon running yeah. matt you need to sponsor me True. It just reminded me you stitched yourself up yeah hoist by his own petard i tell you what we'll do a non-space tweet for the first time ever to get people to uh sponsor <gasps> the host
0: oh my goodness could podcast. we do that Hey, for everyone who can. for everyone who doesn't know, I'm running. Uh, in in twelve days' time, I'm going to be running twenty six point three miles, uh, all in the aid of a wonderful charity that I'm a trustee for called Smart, which is uh, a mental health charity based in London. And I'd bloody love it if you could give us a couple of quid or dollars or wherever you live um, to help out for the good cause. That would be lovely. You're the man. With wobbly legs. Oh, they are going to be wobbly. I'm going to need a rub down.
1: You'll probably, at the end of it, be expelling quite a lot of methane.
0: I see what you did there, Matt. That is a seamless link.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Genius. (laughs) Seamless. That's even more seamless. What? Because it's obviously cracks in the seams of the planet that may be releasing this methane gas.
0: Ah, yes. And this is one reason
1: why Elon said he didn't want to blow it up, right? Right. God knows what. Let's not go. Let's not go back on that. What's brilliant is that uh, ESA's Mars Express has been able to verify for the first time Curiosity when Curiosity in in 2013 picked up a huge um, stink of methane. It went. Uh, yeah, and could smell methane, so hmm. that was uh, really exciting. And everyone was going, well, it could be methane, you know. And uh, But Mars Express, they've reanalyzed the data from Mars Express from that period and have been able to, without any doubt, say, yes, it was methane that Curiosity was detecting. So we've pretty much had very strong confirmation that there was a, a big release of methane into the Martian atmosphere uh, around about 15th of June 2013. Uh huh. Which, of course, is very exciting. Methane being very trendy right now. It really
0: is on, on fleek.
1: Yeah, not, not just for propulsion, but for the biosignature of life itself. Ooh. It might be. But, of course, geological processes also release methane into the atmosphere.
0: This is true.
1: So, here's what Marco Ghirana from the National Institute for Astrophysics. In Rome, Italy said, he said, In the general, we did not detect any methane, (laughs) aside from one definite detection of about 15 parts per billion per volume of methane in the atmosphere, which turned out to be a day after Curiosity reported a spike of about six parts per billion. Six parts per billion? Six parts per billion. I love it. He's the lead author of a paper, In Nature Geoscience, that's all. A a few papers have been released this month in various journals about this uh, methane on Mars and the uh, ExoMars backing it up. So there was a couple of studies that they did to try and work out where it was coming from. So um, the Royal Belgian Institute for Space Aeronomy in Brussels applied computer simulations. Uh, to create one million emission scenarios for each of these squares that are in a grid. So they, the they divided up Gale Crater into grids of about 250 by 250 square kilometres. Right. That's how big Gale Crater is. Wow. It's mad, isn't it? Um, and, uh, yeah, so they've been running computer simulations for emission scenarios in each of those squares, and... Um, and these the, the simulations took into account like the measured data, the expected atmospheric circulation patterns, and methane release intensity and duration based on the geological phenomena of gas seepage, something that you know really well, I'm, I know. Oh, completely. If you're an expert. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but there was a second study as well from the geologists at the National Institute of Geophysics and Volcanology in Rome, Italy, the Italians are all over this, aren't they? Really they? are, uh, and uh, and they were helped by the science, the Planetary Science Institute in Tucson, Arizona, and they've been scrutinising the region around Gale Crater for features where gas seepage is expected. And uh, Marco says, remarkably, we saw that the atmospheric simulation and geological assessment performed independently of each other suggested the same region of provenance. Of the methane, Ooh. so that's pretty cool, isn't it? Very cool. I love that. They're homing down about where this methane is going to come from. There's still quite a few unanswered questions, like how does it get removed from the atmosphere, for example, mm. and how often are these events, etc. But the great news, of course, is that we now have ExoMars that has been now operating for just over a year. And um, hopefully that's going to hone in on that and we're going to get some really, really interesting results about where this methane is coming from. Could be microbes. Could be microbes, Jamie. I'll tell you what. I'll
0: tell you what. I'm not going to get too excited, but we will get to the bottom of this. Excuse the pun.
1: Well, yeah, and we can answer David Bowie's question. Is there life on Mars?
0: I keep having these dreams, Matt, about Europa, so I don't care where it comes from. It's going to find us.
1: Well, oh, Jamie, what have you got to say for yourself this week? Well, I've been
0: looking up about weird objects in space, Matt.
1: As, as, as you promised last week, to be fair.
0: I know, I did promise it last week, but I've been looking into it again. And I mean, there's there's a couple of interesting articles that I read and I just thought I'd tickle your fancy, Matt. See what you think about a few things. Okay, okay. As you know, lots of different companies send different things into space. But did you know, for instance, Matt, mm-hmm. we that Pizza Hut, spent £750,000 in the year 2000 to send a pizza to Russian cosmonaut Yuri Yusukov when he was up on the space station. Did you know that? Now, here's a question for you. Do you like cold pizza or reheated pizza? Which one? Well, I prefer, well, I, I like it fresh, but if it's the next day, I like it cold better.
1: Yeah, I am I'm with you. I like it cold better. What do you th- what do you think Yuri did?
0: Oh, I've got a feeling he heated it up, you know. Because I also found out lots of things I didn't know that there was an oven on the space station. I mean, I just you just don't think about these things, but of course. I thought it was just hot water reheating up their macaroni and cheese and and the like. But uh and that and that terrible ice cream that you get and the terrible space ice cream. dry powdery ice cream, yeah. But they also sent some <laughs> records up to space, Matt, uh, with hundreds of different ways uh, of um, saying the word hello, In lots of different languages. Uh, two gold records. The, surely
1: these are the gold records that are on the Voyager. Yeah,
0: yes, yes, you are absolutely right. It's on the Voyager, and uh, apparently Carl Sagan said that he hoped. That the records would only be played if they're advanced spacefaring civilizations in interstellar space. He doesn't want us playing them oh, unless we meet oh, these intelligent aliens, Matt.
1: It's such a long shot, the Voyagers. The thing is that they, they've gone into interstellar space, but interstellar space is just unimaginably huge. It's pretty and, and, big. And, go, and going at chemical propulsion speeds. It's just pathetic. They're, I know. they're still only ah. They're, uh, they're not even out of the orbit cloud.
0: I got upset about the amount of dead monkeys that there
1: are in space. Most of them apparently named Albert. <laughs> I thought all the monkeys that went into space would have burnt up in the atmosphere by now. Which, which I don't know whether that's better. But so you're saying there's actually literally like monkeys yeah. still out there monkeys in orbit. Monkeys
0: floating around in orbit. Oh, my God. I mean, imagine seeing that on How the space many? station.
1: I don't know. I need to when look I'm into about, this more. Oh, my gosh. Isn't it awful? Now, Jamie, I've I've got one for you. Go on. Do you remember the Doritos commercial? Oh, <laughs>
0: I do remember. That, that,
1: was, that was beamed out to the plough, as we call it, or the Big Dipper, that's, as our American that's it. friends call it. They love a pun, so, and the Big Dipper. Do you know what? I've only just got that. What? That's why they chose it. I thought the reason why they chose that particular because it's forty-seven Ursa Majoris, isn't it, which is which is in the Plough, and I thought they they chose it because it's a very similar star system to ours that probably has planets like ours, and um, and so it's 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 one of the sort of nearest places that they knew at the time because this was way back something like back in. Back in two thousand and eight, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, but Matt, I'm afraid and you're wrong. Pun.
0: The advert was actually about uh, them releasing their, their dipping
1: sources. Hence yes, I know Big that dipper. I didn't Do you know what? I di- oh man, I can't believe that. There you go, I've blown your mind. Pun. How have you missed that? I know, that has blown my mind. C- can you remember the actual advert though? Because I-, I can. I can remember what the what they actually sent. Because it was They actually wrote, because it was a British thing in collaboration with with the Leicester University. So I don't even, I'm not even sure that, do the Americans have Doritos or do they have some other kind of? Oh, um, yeah, Americans have Doritos, yeah. Yeah 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 so the, but this was a british advert this was this was I was didn't like know that. Of, well ru- we'll have to ru- yeah, maybe yeah. we should contact Doritos and find out the the details. You make it we play it. So it was user generated content that they sent. And they, and the winning one was this really weird animation of Doritos all dancing around a glass jar and opening the jar themselves and and dipping in and then the bloke opening the jar and finding a Dorito already in there. Yeah, the key word there is and dipping in. Yes, yes. You've belittled me enough about the this. The
0: point is, Matt, Sorry. the point is that do you think we're going to get some free Doritos now? I hope so. We've said well, Doritos we bloody, quite a lot. Well, bloody should do. Um, so that's a fantastic word. Well, we will definitely look into that. Um, but But, Matt, Luke Skywalker's lightsaber after Return of the Jedi in 1983 mm-hmm. went up. And I love this one. Uh, Clyde is it Clyde Tomba or Tombau, Uh who discovered Clyde Pluto Tomba, yeah. uh, in mm-hmm. 1930? His ashes uh, went up on New Horizons. I did know
1: that one. I did know that one. Yeah,
0: yeah. His his are the furthest remains uh, to
1: travel of any human of any ever. human
0: ever. Uh, one of my <laughs> favourites, Matt, was a prank, and I do know about this. This is a fun prank, bit of high jinx. In 1965, December the 16th, astronauts Walter Schirrer and Thomas Stafford managed to sneak up bells and a harmonica. How'd you sneak that up onto Gemini 6? I don't know. But before re-entering Earth's atmosphere, they reported an object in polar orbit that was a command module and eight modules, eight smaller modules in front. Or Santa in his reindeer. They went on to say that the module was re- wearing a red suit. Stifled by their laughter, they began to play the Christmas song "Jingle Bells," and that was the first time it had been played in space. Matt.
1: Yeah, well, I'm going to pull you up on your your um, as I was pulled up. Oh. by your your pronunciation of Walter Shearer. Oh, here we go. Who we called Walter? She- we called him Walter oh, Shearer no. when he was our astronaut of the week. Uh, But it's Walter Schirra. I I did
0: know that, Matt, but I wanted you to feel better about your Doritos faux pas. Okay.
1: Okay. Jamie? Yeah? There's no space word of the week this week. I just... But, well, because this Alan Bond interview, Alan Bond part three, is a big one. Oh, here we go. What I'm going to do with this one is I'm going to edit it down. It's going to be, like, some really good bits on this one. But I'm going to put big chunk of it onto our Patreon feed. Even if you're not a Patreon, you can go over to our Patreon site at patreon.com forward slash slash interplanetary and play the rest of the interview with Alan Bond because it's mind-blowing. He's so cool. And do you know what's crazy? I went for a drink with one of Alan's friends the other day because he lives in the same village as me, Uh bizarrely. And he started telling, he goes, Well, did you ask Alan this? Did you ask Alan this? And it's like, No, no. And it's just oh. like, What? What? So there's loads of things I've not talked about Alan that I need to talk to him about because he's got things like a computer program that has broken the Turing test, according to Alan. What? So, so and stuff like that. So, that, that's just a little teaser of maybe Alan Bond part four that, I'm, that I'll hopefully do one day soon. OMG.
0: Well, there we go. So, and as Matt said, uh, a huge, huge shout out to our patrons who, you know, they get this kind of extra data from us.
1: Yeah, well, the patrons made it possible. They paid for my train fare to Alan Bond's house. Get so, in. Thank you. Thank you very much. This interview would not have been possible without you. God bless you. Uh, so let's roll it.
2: SSTO in my mind has got uh, very many advantages because if you if you have a look at uh, aircraft operations at a uh, modern airport, I mean it is so slick. The vehicle comes in, they throw all the passengers off, they sweep it out, and uh, sort of. Maybe put some fuel in if they have to. Um, Minimum checks and then load the next lot in and it's off again. And uh, turn around on an aircraft these days is down to a couple of hours, something like that. I'd like to see space... Move in that direction as close as it possibly can. The idea that your rocket's going to arrive at an fix, get at the launch site, and you've then got to put the whole thing together with, with hundreds of people, it's... It's not just that. You've got to make sure that when you do things like that, you put it together correctly. The, the quality assurance and everything involved in just ensuring that all the right plugs are in, that they've all gone into the right sockets, that nothing's been left undone, um, that uh, somebody hasn't made some part fit that wasn't quite right and so on. Uh, because that's what causes rockets to fail. And uh, the cost of all the manpower to do that, because... It's not just a question of the guy out there tightening it up. When the guy does a job in putting a rocket together, he has to sign off that he's done it. Somebody has to check that he signs off correctly that he's done it. And so you you finish up with this this massive cost. The cost out of the hotel work, this was back in the 1980s when uh, the space shuttle was new and it was uh, uh, in operation and so on. Just the cost of taking the payload and putting it into the Space Shuttle was $6 million. That was just the cost of interfacing the payload with the vehicle. Mm. The actual launch cost of the vehicle, all of the preparations, getting the bits to site, assembling it, wheeling it out, standing it up, even though they'd got uh, the actual launch crew at the time down from... I think it was something approaching 20,000 for the uh, Apollo program, and it was down to about 6,500 people to launch a space shuttle. Nonetheless, a single launch of a space shuttle was $750 million, and that was back at the end of the 80s, early 90s. And that's just the, that's just the recurring cost. Now, how can you... If you went to the British government and said, i oh, I've got a program of national importance which is going to have real social uh, feedback. I need $750 million to do it. They'd laugh you out of the place. Mm -hmm. And yet this was the cost of every single shuttle launch. And they did over 115 of them uh, uh, in the end. So to me, getting space to the point where you've got a vehicle Uh, essentially the last flight was the checkout for the next flight, which is how aircraft work. It's got redundancy, so that it can fly with a subsystem down or whatever, Um, and that uh, it's still got to be regularly maintained. And we're we're in the very early days of all of this, obviously. Uh, One would like to feel that by the 22nd century, all this will be old hat, Um, same as uh, aircraft are now. But there are so many reasons why you don't want this uh, a vehicle arriving we've got to stand it up we've got to fill it with propellants everybody's got to be in the blast shelter while we're doing it and so on we need to get away from all of that mm.
3: so dare i say it's about making uh, space boring and routine and so bob
2: parkinson was the first one i recall sort of making a, a statement like that to me antarctica is the model so somebody's bit of radio kit in antarctica fails um, there's a Hercules on its way down there on a routine flight with his next piece of kit on it. How many times do you hear politicians sort of on their high horse in the Commons saying we should pull out of Antarctica? Mm. It's too expensive. Antarctica is not political, but it is in, in some senses as to whether we should be exploiting it now. Um, but uh, there are no Commons debates about the cost and the operation and all that sort of thing. It's, it's below the noise and it's not, it's not in politicians' interest to haggle about it. I'd like to see space like that. So.
1: Can you can you not have a boring stu- two-stage vehicle is, is isn't isn't say something like Falcon 9 block 5 approaching a boring <clears> two-stage <throat> vehicle.
2: So. so the nearest I think that we ever saw that if you go back to the late 1960s early 70s sort of uh, pre the American space shuttle that we actually got. Mm. This was the two-stage aeroplane and that From what I've seen on two-stage vehicles, that was the closest we got uh, to having something that could approach boring operations. Um, They simplified the way that you'd assemble those vehicles. What I find astounding is that the Americans in that time developed all the engine technology. The SSME that went into the shuttle that actually emerged was the engine that was needed to make that work. They got right on top of all the aluminium airframe technology um, with a two-stage vehicle, they would have been able to have a more robust uh, thermal protection system than those uh, damn tiles that they finished up with, uh, throw away the solid boosters so that uh, uh, we're not having to sort of drag those things out of the ocean and refurbish <sighs> them. And it did seem to me that the Americans have got all the technology at hand to do that. Now in keeping with many changes in economics across the rest of the world, Elon Musk, who I've probably said before, is uh, to me a hero. uh, He's actually come up with a a method of doing this. I don't think it's a safe method of recovery that he's got. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the uh, things, the horrible things that I think are waiting downstream is uh, when one of those boosters arrives back at the Cape and its uh, braking engines don't fire. And uh, that's going to produce, if, if it's from a, a Falcon 9 Heavy, uh, he's only got to have one booster fail, it's going to take the other one out spectacularly as well. Mm. So I don't think it's a safe method of recovery, but he's broken the mould. At least he's now reflying hardware. I haven't personally seen any figures as to how much the refurbishment's costing. So the space shuttle, for example, the Americans made a great big. Uh, um, publicity uh, argument out of the fact they were getting the solid booster cases back. But in reality, when they got those back, they were stripped right down, they were disassembled, they had to be corrected on shape, um, uh, retested for flaws and defects. So it probably cost as much as if they just made new yeah. boosters. Um, but uh, obviously it was as politically very expedient to demonstrate to the world that the, the space shuttle was a semi-reusable vehicle and that the boosters were reflying. flying um, I've not yet seen any figures uh, with regard to how much refurbishment SpaceX is having to do uh, on the boosters that are reflying and uh, whether they're managing to keep the same engines and so on. Uh, that's probably my fault. I've just not been following the literature. The figures may actually be out there, but I've not seen it. Yeah, I mean, they're supposed to be
1: trying to get the Block Five down to a day day turnaround, but of course they're they're nowhere near that. I mean, if it was, you know, you could you could clearly see if it was the next day they had it back on the launch pad, then Mm. they can't have done too much refurbishment. So,
2: I don't know who are the uh, actual engineers behind the recovery, but they are very good. There's no question about that. Um, They've made a system work. The the concept's been in the literature for very, very many years. And In my own personal archive, I've got original handwritten notes from uh, Philip Bona of the old Douglas company in which he was advocating uh, um, pretty much what SpaceX are doing a long, long time back in the – my notes go back to the 1970s. So the concept's not new, mm. but the uh, flaw that everybody saw in it is what happens when uh, the uh, braking engines don't light when it comes back to the Cape, because mm. there's a lot of propellant on that vehicle to decelerate it. Mm. And uh, Lux kerosene, for example, <coughs> excuse me, um, is over 1.4 times the explosive yield of TNT. Uh, so that's that's a big bang if it uh, if it fails to decelerate.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's already smashing windows, isn't it, as it comes back through, just from the, just on the sonic boom. So. Well,
3: I think in, 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 uh, in media terms, it seems that SpaceX have really captured people's imagination. Mm. So it's you know it's spectacular stuff to watch. Whereas if you think about SSTO, it's not going to be as spectacular to watch. Not in the same way that uh, you know vertically launched and vertically returning rocket
2: is but come on all of us like to go and stand and watch a steam engine go down the track oh, yeah. <laughs> whereas you know yeah. one of the high-speed trains is seriously boring yeah. and yeah. Uh, yeah. i mean what, what are we all turned on by you know lots of steam and flames and so yeah. uh, whereas something that just goes swish is uh, how can you get excited about that yeah. it's yeah. Uh,
3: well, i still go to heathrow airport with my kids and we just watch the plane <laughs> and it's just great you know,
2: yeah so it's, you know, yeah so, but uh, no it's it needs to be um, not boring, exactly. It just We just need to be able to make sure that it is not um, a seriously captivating uh, activity. Yeah.
3: I think what I meant was rather than boring, routine is probably the... Routine's routine a good word. Is the, is the but
2: as I say, uh, our old colleague, Bob Parkinson, was the first one I think uh, I heard sort of say, uh, we want to see it boring. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. But Bob and myself often have had discussions in the past of that. Uh, Do you you think, if we get closer to home, do you think that ESA uh, and and
1: Ariane missed a trick with Ariane 6 in in not even contemplating
2: reusability as quickly as possible on it? Uh, Yeah. um, I don't want to knock the poor old uh, uh, European Space Agency, but uh, when it comes to access to space... I really, I really feel that they could do a lot better. Uh, the Americans can turn around um, a whole new launch system in a fraction of the time that the European Space Agency can. And it's hard to see why. Um, we just seem to spend far more time debating and deliberating over stuff. Um, The the generation of launch vehicles that's just gone, the the Atlas V and the uh, Delta IV, Heavy Delta, etc. The Americans turned that system around and produced it in well under 10 years. Hmm. And yet Ariane 5 was 20 years in gestation. And I just don't know why it takes so long in europe uh, to do anything relative to the americans and yet quite a lot of stuff that we do in europe is done cheaper than the americans despite the fact that you know we've mucked about for a long time deciding what it is we're going to do we don't seem to be able to make that decision elon musk i can't i can't balance elon i've tried very hard to balance the books and understand why SpaceX can do things apparently a lot cheaper than anybody else. Mm. I have to conclude that there is something not in the public domain about the funding of SpaceX, it, it, it just doesn't work. I know that a lot of enthusiasts have sort of said, well, you can alter these figures. And yep. Yes, he bought out Vought Aviation for uh, uh, whatever it was, a fraction, of a dollar or something, and he got access to all the fast track program, uh, engine hardware, um, but even when you take that into account, you cannot make the uh, uh, accounts of SpaceX uh, actually work. Um, but nonetheless, in terms of getting things done, to go from a standing start to flying a Falcon 9 in about five years, that is very impressive. The only more impressive thing that I know of <clears throat> is back in the good old Cold War years um, was um, the uh, uh, um, the Douglas uh, Thor missile, which went from a standing start to the first one on the pad in 11 months. Now, how do you do that? It's uh, very impressive. It didn't work, but two months later, it did. So in in a tad over a year, you've gone from a standing start to having a a vehicle. In that case, it's a missile, but a vehicle actually flying.
3: Maybe that was the Cold War, you know, the the impetus, you know, the... the, uh... Focus
2: was on producing. So I, I think it's amazing that Musk has managed to achieve development timescales, which previously could only been achieved by governments under Cold War type pressures. Mm. So I think when it comes to looking at things like uh, uh, Ariane Six, I, I think a lot of introspection is necessary to try to find out what it is that keeps these things dragging on mm. so long. Is it just a question of funding? Back in the good old days of our uh, ELDO program, of course, the real problem there is that uh, it never had a unified organization. It was all done by individual governments doing their own individual bits and all the individual civil services trying to communicate. And as a consequence, not only did it drag out, but it never produced a successful mission to orbit. Um, So this side of the Atlantic, we don't seem to be able to move the same way that the Americans can. Uh, my own experience in trying to get uh, um, reaction engines and uh, the Sabre development and uh, Skylon. Um, The shareholders have been absolutely magnificent. I can't can't in any way fault the private investors that have done that. The government, of course, did finally come through, but it it took the government three years uh, to finally release the money that um, David Willits had uh, uh, decreed and, uh, and George Osborne um, earlier, so <laughs> three years just to release the money. Mm-hmm. So yeah. there is an issue this side of the Atlantic which the Americans normally don't suffer from. I say normally because when I then look at SLS and Orion, I mean, they're, <laughs> uh, they're getting bad habits from Europe, I think, when it comes to... Uh, To those systems, yeah. So,
1: I mean, do you have a theory about what that bad habit is? How is how does that creep in? How does the how how have America basically caught the European disease?
2: I really don't know. Um, One of the great things about Elon Musk and uh, going back in time to Korolev in the uh, Soviet Union, um, you've got a guy who says, "This is what I'm going to do." And the engineers will come forward and say, but, 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 they they don't want any buts. That's you're going to do it. Mm. I've said it. You just go and do it. Make it, test it, get it done. And Elon Musk and Korolev have got uh, quite a lot in common from that point of view. Um, You need somebody at the top who's just going to say, this is how we're going to do it. Uh, Get on with it. (laughs) And then other people will say, well, we ought to do some optimization, you know, never mind the optimization, just go make this work. And uh, so looking back in time, that's that's very much how things used to work um, back in the immediate post-war years and the mm. 1950s and so on. But to some extent, I think we're all blighted by the idea that we can't have something that breaks on the test stand. We've got to, we've got to go away and we've got to design it to death. We've got to analyse it into the ground. And then we're going to put it on the test stand and it's going to work first time. It doesn't. But uh, that's... That's the principle: the idea that you can't have failures during a development program while you're building equipment. But, is, uh, is it something to do with maybe that the shareholders themselves
1: aren't passionate enough about the about the about the project that that they get scared too quickly?
2: There's very much an element of that, I think, in that um, projects tend to be progressively funded. You've got so-called milestones. And so projects now are broken down into uh, uh, a long time scale with intermittent uh, milestones so that you can achieve that. And then everybody's got the confidence to put the money in to go to the next bit. Whereas as far as I can see that uh, in terms of SpaceX at- achieving this really tight time scale, they had a milestone with the Falcon 1. And it took them a while to get that to work. But as soon as they got the Falcon 1 working, Falcon 9 was straight into it, not a load of intermediate development Mm. programs and so on in between. Once uh, Musk realized that he – I think it was a very close run thing. If the Falcon 1 hadn't finally succeeded, then uh, I suspect that SpaceX wouldn't have gone on. Mm. But Falcon 1 sort of finally did it. And then the timescale after Falcon 1 to Falcon 9 – and, I mean, Falcon 9 in many respects is just sort of nine times Falcon 1. <laughs> and yeah. uh, so that's that's been a success. This breaking down everything into uh, intermediate steps and we're not going to fund the next bit, it wouldn't be so bad if the funding was already in the pipeline waiting to go. Mm. But it isn't. It's uh, a lot of committees and decisions and then and start worrying about how you're going to put the funding in for the next time. Uh I think with the Americans and NASA at the moment, and the SLS, I think it's lacking an objective. Uh, they, first of all, it was going to be returned to the moon, then it was going to be Mars, and then it might be returned to the moon, and then it might be to go and have a look at an asteroid. And uh, one of the things that is really death to a program and uh, pushes the cost up dramatically is when you can't make your mind up and start changing the specifications and so on. Mm.
3: So, so uh, you've got to have an overriding purpose and be focused on that.
2: And I think that uh, I perceive that the Americans don't have that at this point in time. Yeah, there are a lot of ideas, and uh, obviously there's now a lot of issue about the uh, gateway uh, sort of route, which I don't think has got many enthusiastic supporters for it. Um, The great thing about Apollo is that Kennedy gave the Americans and said, we're off to the moon, and uh, 1969, they did it. And one of the things that one has to remember about 1969—that was only 25 years after the V two—and uh, 25 years <laughs> later, you've got people actually on the moon. Yeah, and uh, well, it's, ba- it's barely 65 years after the first aircraft. <laughs> absolutely, <laughs> it's, it's, it's incredible. Absolutely
3: is one of the most staggering technological. Pro- uh, um, progressions in human history from the Wright brothers to Apollo 11 is just... But, yeah,
1: yeah, and you you, yep. you look at Saturn V and you think,
2: what <clears throat> well, is SLS really mm. that much of a progression from that? So I, I think that a lot of people sort of asking the question, why can't you just get the drawings out for Saturn V and yeah. dust it down and sort of bring some of the technology up to date? Mm. And we're back to Korolev. you see, a lot of people would say, but we can do so much better, you know, mm. we've got all these super materials and so on. And, you know, if, if Korolev was in the room, I'm plumbing sure that what he would say, never all that, just go and do it, you know. <laughs> yeah. Get get the drawings out, change the electronics, because that's where the big changes have taken place. Yeah. But everything else, just, just make it the same. Yeah. But uh, I think it's very, very difficult to know all the detailed reasons of why we just can't move on these things these days. Why, Obviously, With reaction engines, when uh, I was running the company, I can see how a little bit of inertia spills over. Something gets delayed, other people get delayed. As soon as that happens, actually, uh, you you can see the weeks flashing by, and nothing happening. Especially when you get onto test stands, Mm. that's that's where the when you've got a piece of equipment that won't function for, you know. And that's where you've got to put the engineers on it. You need a very quick turnaround uh, with your workshops in order to get something that isn't working and so on. And we did manage to achieve that when when we did the uh, uh, pre-cooler testing at Reaction Engines. We we got a phenomenal response from uh, our workshops within the company and so on. So we'd do something in the morning, find it wasn't right. Back in the afternoon, the components would be back in there and we'd be back on air again by the end of the day. And uh, that that really really worked, but uh, one can see how once once you've got programs with decision points, et cetera, As I've already said, I think the reasons are very complicated, but it amounts to a system just having an inertia that uh, hard to but get around. What about around. The, the
3: sort of um, risk averse culture? You know, the sort of the, health, the, the proverbial health and safety aspects of it.
2: That so health and safety point? has had a dramatic impact on uh, how how much it costs and uh, the difficulties of getting something done. I'm I'm very much in favor of health and safety, but I do think that uh, health and safety as it stands, not only in this country, but uh, um, pretty much across all of Western uh, uh, countries and probably into uh, the ex-Soviet bloc countries uh, these days is a real drag anchor on getting things done. And I don't... A lot of the things that I see in health and safety um, I don't think are, uh, are absolutely essential or do I think it puts the risk uh, to people up. Um, health and safety these days seems to go beyond just human health and safety, but uh, economic health and safety. So the possibility that you might damage test facilities, for example, if you have a failure. You've obviously got to have an eye on that. But uh, any competent designer is actually building that into their work as they go. You do not need a separate uh, committee looking over their shoulder, sort of uh, inquiring into every bit of it. You've got to devolve some of the responsibility onto the people actually doing the design and manufacturing. Um, Whereas... There are now whole separate organisations um, with volumes and volumes of uh, uh, material, codes of practice, uh, best working, etc., in order to avoid even the slightest possibility of uh, of a mishap and uh, somebody mm. getting hurt. There's lots of examples spring to mind, but it would be boring to go into it. But, uh, um, just the use of quite a lot of substances in daily use in companies and so on where there may be if you don't use uh, respirators etc some possibility that you may uh, and the work's still going on many years ago i was uh, i won't say which organisation i was working for um, but we had to uh, braise up some copper samples and uh, these copper samples required uh, a silver brazing medium and the flux that was required was pretty toxic and the organization wouldn't even allow that flux on site so i did it in my oven in the kitchen in order to do the brazing sample <laughs> uh, i would claim it's not affected me other people might disagree <laughs> but uh, um, with all of these things there's got to be common sense and sometimes i don't feel that uh, that that is in play.
1: Yeah, often it's the misunderstanding between hazard and risk, isn't it? It's yes. like you go, it's, it's not a risk, <laughs> it was a hazard. <laughs>
2: if, if you lie face down in two inches of water, you die. Mm. And uh, obviously, people <laughs> don't do that, you know. Um, so yeah. uh, we all still manage to take baths and go to swimming pools and uh, manage that quite successfully.
1: Yeah, we, 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 we were talking about uh, single-stage to orbit and test stands, and you sort of mentioned that, so... Uh, some some of our listeners are, are interested in in the, the kind of roadmap of the Sabre engine. I know that there's a couple of test stands now that have been one in America, one over here. Uh, can you
2: tell us a little bit about where that where the, where we're at with the Sabre engine? Which is... Yes. So uh, obviously, I'm now retired from uh, Reaction Engines, so uh, I'm not actually speaking on behalf of the company, but I'm sure that uh, um, they don't mind me saying what. Uh, I can about those programs. So um, in the early days of reaction engines, the, the big reason for doing the Sabre engine was to enable the Skylon space plane. As we've gone on and refined all of the uh, thermodynamics of the cycle, we realized that these engines have got much wider applications than just space planes. There are substantial terrestrial applications for all kinds of civil and potential military applications. So what the company has done in recent years is uh, in recognition of that, is focused on trying to demonstrate that the Sabre engine technology is all viable. It's all viable in computer modeling and uh, as much engineering, common sense, and so on as you can put into it. But the next step is to actually get some of this hardware on test. There's no new physics in a Sabre engine. The uh, In fact, well, most of the physics is over 100 years old. Um, but a lot of the uh, hardware Um, is now being enabled by new technologies like uh, additive layer manufacture and so on. And uh, some of the uh, uh, heat exchangers and so on in Sabre Engine are a real serious challenge. We're talking about very tiny passages about the same sort of size as the passage in your lungs, the alveoli in your lungs that uh, enable oxygen to be absorbed by your bloodstream. And we've got to manufacture that. It's great with lungs because they grow, but uh, <laughs> we've not actually managed to achieve that with a Sabre engine yet. Um, so there's, there's a, a whole development program on technology, a very expensive program. And then That equipment's obviously got to go on test. And as any engineer knows in this field, we're pushing temperatures, power densities, stress levels to their limit. And inevitably, um, that testing program is going to have its failures, anticipated failures that have then got to be corrected. So Reaction Engines at this point in time is focusing very, very much on demonstrating all of that engine technology works. And when they've done that, then not only the Sabre engines for Skylon are gonna be possible, but Sabre engines for Mach 5 aircraft uh, to travel around the world, Um, smaller vehicles than Skylon, which would be able to, uh, with the help of an upper stage, but uh, smaller payloads into uh, orbit, Uh, but in particular, uh, enable a space infrastructure. So Skylon is really just the first part of an infrastructure, which in my view, Uh, would eventually span all the way out to the Moon using uh, uh, permanently space-based vehicles. So if you go back to uh, uh, some of the uh, uh, writings of von Braun and the British Interplanetary Society um, back in the late 40s, early 50s, then it was never all about a single shot to the Moon like Apollo. Mm. It was always about having a way station Mm. and a lot of the concepts that have been de- uh, developed since that with uh, resident orbit uh, resonant uh, orbital uh, vehicles with uh, suitably uh, placed uh, propellant depots regular fueling etc i think that that's where that will go coming back to reaction engines reaction engines is uh, trying to get the first of its demonstration engine technology on test uh, probably 2020 um, almost certainly it will span 2021 2022 uh, meanwhile um, there is a, a, a part of reaction engines in the united states reaction engines Inc um, is chief executive uh, adam dissell is uh, a very experienced guy and uh, they've built a second test facility there which is a high temperature gas supply using a jet engine uh, with reheat uh, to supply uh, Air at the right temperature into a pre-cooler, which uh, um, has got uh, all of the helium cooling, etc. In that, and that's currently on demonstration even as we speak. So it's moving on, mm. but uh, it's it's a very demanding program from the manufacturing point of view.
1: I presume it's, it's complex politically with dealing with the American side of things and DARPA involved. It has in...
2: been very complex and uh, at the moment um, it's not especially complex in that particular area. Now, um, there are complexities in any technology exchange with the Americans these days because they are extremely covetous of their technology um, but also uh, um I'll use the word paranoid in the nicest possible sense that this technology is going to find itself into uh, the hands of people who are not particularly friendly towards america mm. and uh, as a as a consequence of the very covetous control of that technology it makes working with the americans actually quite difficult and so one of the reasons that reaction engines established its own company on american soil is to try to overcome some of the difficulties that would otherwise uh, be very hard uh, uh, to overcome but but presumably it goes both ways you don't want
1: you don't want technology leaking out of out of so I guess.
2: the yeah we it's not just the americans we have to be careful of there are other nations in on the earth that would desperately like to get hold of the technology. The principle of Sabre engines is out there. You know, most people can go away mm. and uh, look up the stuff that's been published in the past and know how it works. The real problem with a Sabre engine is making one. Mm. And uh, the technology that uh, has had to be developed to produce the pre-coolers, the, uh, in particular the uh, the control of processors, has been very, very hard one. So uh, we're dealing with materials working very close to the uh, physical limits that those materials can operate at. And if you get all the process control wrong, then you can ruin the material even during manufacture, let alone during its operation in the engine. Mm. So that's that's really where the uh, important bit is, and it's keeping that process information very tightly uh, uh, to reaction engine's chests. That, that's the point. There are patents now uh, out there, and uh, so patents are obviously double-edged instruments. Mm. Um, On the one hand, you seek to uh, prevent somebody else taking your ideas. On the other hand, as soon as you produce a patent, you tell other people a great deal about what it is you're doing. So, Mm. So it is moving forward. It's... It has to be done uh, very competently, and Reaction Engines has got now a lot of people making sure that they control the intellectual property and uh, make sure that uh, it's well monitored uh, to be certain that other people are not uh, getting their hands on it one way or another. Is that something that someone really keeps an eye
1: on in terms of, say... Because there's rumours that uh, China have a, a similar uh, cap or, or trying to work on a similar cap- capability. Is is it, are there any are there, are there systems around the world that you know that are that are maybe com- uh, potential competitors to the Saber system?
2: We know that various companies uh, and we know that uh, the Chinese themselves have got uh, a strong interest in Saber technology, and have had for many years. Uh, for very good reasons. I mean, Mm. uh, China is a very large industrialized nation and it wants to reduce particularly um, its ability to uh, uh, physically interact with the rest of the world for a few hours, to Mm. to a few hours, which Sabre technology is capable of doing. Um, However, um, what I personally have seen, and I've not necessarily uh, seen the most recent information, is that uh, the other people have got a long way to go to catch up with us so uh, china japan america um, even some of our uh, uh, cousins just the other side of the channel Hmm. um, have still got a long way uh, to uh, emulate the technology that reaction engines is now in control of Um, however we can't be complacent if uh, if reaction engines suffers lack of investment and can't keep the uh, programmes running, then other people will overtake it. Yeah. So I think that that's particularly important in the context of uh, uh, potentially the UK pulling out of Europe. It's,
1: yeah, and I was gonna, about, about to suggest that that, is that something that keeps you awake at night, particularly considering the background that you've had with the British government, especially pulling out of projects every... it seems to me that your, your entire life is, is a story of, of, of a project getting so far and then governments losing their nerve almost. Is, is, is it something that, keep, that keeps you up, that, that somehow that's the sabre won't get over the line purely because of a lack of
2: nerve? First of all, I have to say that these days, with the help of a well-known amber Scottish liquid product, there's very little keeps me awake at night. <laughs> but, um, yeah, the, the things that I uh, have anxiety about from, from the point of view of uh, benefiting the UK um, is that uh, I would like to see us more enthusiastic as a nation in uh, looking at what Reaction Engines is doing and pushing that product much, much harder um, by the... the the company is almost a sort of biblical tale of uh, having to go and forage for its own straw and clay to make the bricks. Mm. Uh, whereas other nations, where the governments uh, have got a rather different uh, ethic with regard to the funding of projects of national importance, um, don't have that uh, impediment. So I would like to see, uh, at a national level, um, both national investment but also uh, schemes to encourage uh, wealthy organisations, wealthy individuals, etc., uh, to put their money into not just uh, products like the Sabre, but uh, right across the board. Mm. Electric cars, you know, the automotive industry, uh, the wider uh, today aerospace industry uh, in the UK. Um, if, if we're going to co- compete on a future market as an individual nation, then I think that uh, there's got to be a lot of soul-searching within government, and uh, in particular within those parts of government which look after the interests of industry in order to make us it's not a question of being competitive. We've got to be out there on the forefront with cutting-edge technology that the rest of the world's not actually woken up to yet. Mm. Once you get into a competitive situation, I think there's a long history with Britain and its inability to compete on a level playing field. So the car industry is a case in point. Um, we're only going to, in my view, succeed if we have products that other people don't actually have. Mm. Whereas if we get into a sort of slogging match of seeing whether we can produce our ordinary vehicles cheaper than (laughs) the the Chinese or the Koreans can produce their ordinary vehicles, I I don't think we'll win that competition. It's not in the British culture to actually succeed Mm. on that field. Where we do very well and it's in the past it's been despite government and not because of it is when we've we've the uh innovative people in this country have come up with something new you yeah. know radar jet engines yeah. um supersonic aircraft um not so much in the rocket propulsion we were rather sort of behind the chase in that but nonetheless i mean we do have a very good record of being out there with a large number of products first and then letting everybody else overtake us. So um, I, I would like to think that that will change. That does give me anxiety, but as I've said, few things actually keep me awake anymore. So, <laughs> yeah. so yeah, I mean, because I mean, that does play into
1: Brexit, doesn't it, in terms of it, – it, it, do you think – is Brexit – Either, the, no matter which way it goes, is, is that something that has an effect on something like reaction engines or, or
2: other companies that are in the UK? Fortunately, most of the support for reaction engines has come via the European Space Agency, via, via the UK government through the European Space Agency, um, but also through uh, predominantly uh, uh, UK based uh, private and institutional investment. And As such, Brexit in whatever form directly shouldn't actually influence that because the European Space Agency is not actually a European uh, uh, institution. Um, And so you've got people like Canada, for example, involved in the European Space Agency. Um, Having said that, then I think that unless... um, we have got something extremely innovative to offer, um, and that is enjoying support back home. I cannot intuitively see that other nations will be enthusiastic to support it Mm. if it's not attracting uh, support back home. It's something that uh, the various uh, nations of Europe have always had difficulty understanding about the Sabre engine, for example, if the Sabre engine is such a bloody good idea, why isn't the UK government actually supporting it uh, in a much stronger fashion? Mm. With regard to the actual process of coming out of Europe, um, I don't feel that the answer to that uh, is simple. I have my own views, but I won't uh, voice those. But uh, there are obviously, we're either in or we're out. If you can't belong to a club, leave it and still expect to have all the same facilities that you had (laughs) when you were part of it. I Mm. I think that's a non-starter from square one. If you're going to leave a club and then uh, essentially compete with uh, the uh, role that that club uh, has set itself, then you've got to have some very, very clear ideas and uh, determination to make that work. So if we come back to good old blighty in the context of leaving uh, uh, the European Union, then I can see that there's tremendous talent in this country. And I can see historically in the past that uh, we've done very well at that. But what I don't see uh, at this moment in time is all of the uh, surrounding decisions and uh, systems being put in place uh, to support a lonely Britain out on it on its own outside of that uh, union uh, to then go into competition with it. So I can't remember exactly what the size of the European Union is now. It's over three hundred million uh, sort of people. Um, it is the biggest trading market on the planet. We are going to pull ourselves out of it, and somewhere, some of our uh, our politicians believe that we've got some magic up our sleeve that's going to enable this island of sort of, uh, uh, well, in terms of the actual production side of it, maybe 50 million on a good day uh, to actually compete with this larger organization. Um, I myself can see that the European Union has got a lot of failings within it, but I don't really believe that you solve those failings by actually removing yourself from the process. So, I'm, I'm very open to whatever the options are going to be. Yeah. I do wish we'd just take the coral of it, uh, attitude and say, <laughs> for God's sake, stop mucking about and go and do it, whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. Whatever the go and do it is. It's down is. to
3: leadership, it's down to political leadership. Absolutely. And whether we're going to get that. And as you yeah. say, if we look at the current situation it really doesn't look like we're going to get that
2: anytime soon no we're dithering and mucking about and uh, full of indecision and debate instead of somebody you know i always come back to korolev because my view is that korolev was never really a very uh, great engineer uh, superb uh, in terms of uh, his interest and motivation to uh, put the uh, soviet union into space um And he was a good engineer. He wasn't a great engineer. Glushko was a much uh, better engineer. And uh, Glushko and Korolev were sort of daggers drawn at one another. But uh, Korolev just had this ability to say, stop mucking about and go and do it. Somebody would sort of say, but if we didn't, he'd, he'd say, I don't want to know. That's what, that's what I've drawn. Here's the picture. Get it drawn up and get it in the factory. Yeah, I kind of get the feeling that Musk's probably a little bit like that. He's, and so that's yeah. why I drew the comparison earlier. I think that Elon Musk is very much like that. Mm. And uh, I myself was a standard when I saw the recovery process they were going to use on the Falcon 9 because before they actually announced exactly how they were going to do it, I did my own uh, mission and uh, uh, propulsion studies and so on. And uh, over the years, I've become convinced that the way you get your first stage back is uh, put wings on it and a small jet engine and fly it home. Um, dump all yeah. the propellants so that what's coming back is relatively inert except for a few litres of kerosene for the flyback engine to uh, to get the uh, stage back and then it lands on an undercarriage and there was back in the 1950s a programme called the X-10 which was the flight test vehicle for the Navajo missile mm. and even back then oh, you, yeah. could, you could fly a vehicle automatically return it and land it uh, the Russians did the same with the Buran uh, space vehicle.
3: Which makes it even more astonishing that STS-1 you know, flew with humans. Could have a long
2: discussion on that. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, John Young. But, was but it, it, I was astounded that it came back that way, but Musk is my hero. Mm-hmm. He's, he's basically said, I've got a lot of money. I've just bought an, uh, an out-of-date air, uh, uh, aircraft factory. Um, I've done a deal with... Uh, uh, the, the U.S. government over the access to the fast-track technology on the Merlin engine, uh, go and do it, make it all work. Mm. Um, those so again, people... it,
3: it's, it's leadership, and it's almost as if he's a kind of benign dictator within his. Sphere.
2: So one of, or the... well, not so benign, <clears throat> well, maybe, not, yeah. <laughs> in trying to work out how uh, he's done it for the claimed costs, which I, I, I already said I I can't explain. Nonetheless, I think that within SpaceX that uh, somebody's given a job to do, a bit like the old Soviet Union, just go and do it. The money's there. Um, I'm not going to be sort of waggling about. I'm not going to stop it partway through because you've run over budget. You just go away and you do it, and it it will cost what it costs because another thing that irks me quite a lot is that uh, there's some project and at the start of that project, somebody's done some calculations on what they think it's going to cost. The project finally costs a certain amount of money, and everybody says, oh, it was a cost overrun, et cetera. Mm. No, it wasn't. The people did the cost estimate to start. We've got it wrong. I mean, things cost what they cost. Mm. And then to find that the costs are going up, and then have a you know stop-start, stop-start sort of attitude towards it while we stop and review the costs. And this, this is what British governments have done over the years especially since the 1960s we've started so much stuff HS two, you know. <laughs> please, Mister Corrillo, what would your view be? You know, just yeah. go and do it.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, and, and SLS. I
2: mean, yeah. You, you could, SLS. Yeah. yeah.
1: So it's not. Yes, yeah, it's a. Uh, it's a disease. that goes. Can I get? Can I get really nerdy? Yeah. <laughs> the uh, the um I've I've been reading a book quite recently called Ignition, which is a which is a book that got republished. It was and it's all about lots of different types of. Uh, rocket fuels basically the 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 hunt for the perfect rocket fuel and i know that you spent your time when you worked for the ministry of defense you were spending a lot of time your own personal time on computer time that you'd managed to uh correct yeah. uh, to to get uh working on on looking at basically your own personal research into ignition yeah. types yeah. and 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 launcher types yeah. is 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 there any like really great insights that you've got from that other than finding out you couldn't have single stage
2: to So there's, a, there's an old phrase about horses for courses. And um, I think Elon Musk chose pretty much the... There we
1: go. AI. Just
2: gets better and better, doesn't he? Listening back to that, I forgot how many just
1: ridiculous things there were in there. So, so good. The name's Bond. <laughs> Alan Bond. Uh, the name's Bond. Alan Bond.
0: We haven't had Space Word of the Week,
1: but have we got Space Fact of the Week? We have got a little space factor. Oh, week. let's finish on that then. Yeah, I really like this one because one thing that I've uh, set up for my own students uh, next term is, is to teach them how to solder. Uh, oh. For our American or Canadian listeners, that's that's solder, oh. I think they call it. I know, it's weird because it's got an L in there, but they call it soldering, but it's soldering in, in Europe and Britain. But, yes... ESA have actually got seven certified soldering schools across the continent. So one in Italy, France, Germany, Denmark, Switzerland, and here in the UK, and and a further school on its way in Poland. Oh. But these schools, yeah, these schools are so good at teaching people soldering that uh, they've gone on to sort of work for all these other companies. So like you know all your Formula One companies and people like that are sending their um, their peeps. No Even way! From people from Argentina and Malaysia and the United States are all going to these soldering schools because they're because you know it's the ultimate soldering accreditation you can get. Well,
0: I could do with some of that because cool I had that? I had a leaky sink the other day. <laughs> I might not have needed those think... skills, but I mean, nah. what hell of a job it would have been!
1: You, you, what? Who you want is Ernst Messerschmidt.
0: Yeah, that's true. Actually, to come
1: round and fix and come round and Legend. fix your uh, sink. Legend, but no, it was uh no, soldering because, of course, soldering is mega, mega, mega important on ye oldy satellite. It is because you don't want them breaking with your dry joints and stuff. No, and you know you got to keep you got to keep the tip of your solder soldering iron you got to keep that clean. You've got to keep it clean so you don't get any contaminants to make your dry joints later on. Ah, oh, Keep it clean. You do. Nice, nice make and, your satellites nice and clean, mean. Well-tinned. Well-tinned. Uh, there we go. So, Jamie, what do you think about that? Well, I love it. I'm quite excited about it. I want to get myself on one of those courses. Well,
0: I might just buy one and teach myself. I mean, how hard can it be to solder a satellite? I love
1: I love soldering, by the way. The The only problem is I grew up when there was lead in the solder, oh. so my teeth went green. My teeth literally went green Did for they? a bit because I was breathing in so much lead fumes, oh, God. which is why I've gone a bit funny. Yeah, yeah. it's never left you, has it? No. No, that explains <laughs> so a lot. Ja- Jamie, yeah? shall, we, shall we say goodbye to the Spodcats?
0: I'd like to wish them a happy weekend. Um, I would also like to remind them to look up maybe take a pair of binoculars and maybe have a look at the moon tonight see if you can spot any golf balls
1: <laughs> well have a look at the moon tonight and think to yourself maybe we'll be watching television in five years time extremely excited and uh rubbing matt's nose in the fact that he was wrong and that we actually got to the moon in 2024 yeah and that it I and just, that it is we, made of cheese trust me i don't care if i'm wrong and we're the, and we go to the. it's a it's a like an it's a it's a it's a no-lose situation for me this one
0: matt <laughs> if loving space is wrong i don't want to yeah. be right
1: oh that is beautiful
0: James. yeah yeah <laughs> You, you old fool, you silly ass, uh, Matt. Just before we go, if somebody's mm? listened to this show for the first time and they've liked our
1: absolute nonsense, what can they do about it? Well, they can uh, they can maybe just put a drop us a five star review Ooh, on yeah. their favourite podcasting place, which which now includes Spotify, uh, Google Play. Uh, iTunes, Stitcher, Acast, all those places. And, Matt, that's not just this. a vanity product.
0: Does that actually mean that people can help it
1: sort of find the podcast? That That's what it does. Yeah. It, helps, it helps others go, do you know what? So-and-so liked um, so-and-so's podcast, but they also liked this one. It's come up as a suggestion. Exactly. This isn't just because we're a
0: pair of peacocks. Um,
1: which, well, we are. (laughs) Although I do like it. Yeah. I do like it when they say uh, I listen to the Interplanetary Podcast every week and Matt's my favourite host, Jamie's rubbish, stuff like that. I love it when when people say that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, it hurts my feelings, but then, like like I said to you, Matt, now I'm mindful, I don't let it get to me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, you are a beautiful human being. I just realised that I'm a floating bit of uh, decaying stardust in a tiny corner of one of many bubble
1: universes. Well, Jamie, all I'm going to say is I hope that I hope that if any of you uh, want to sponsor Jamie, you you do you go do go over to Jamie's little thing that I'll stick in the in the show notes. Oh, Fo-shizzle. thanks,
0: Matt. I really appreciate it, and uh, I, I wish everyone a good weekend. Look after yourself.
1: Jamie, are you going to film? Are you going to film a little bit of footage we can stick on the Patreon feed of you of you coming over the finish line? Yeah, Pardon the express. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you what? You want me to do that again? <laughs> right. Oh. On that on that one. Bye bye, Spodcats. Take care. Have a lovely weekend. Tati bye. Bye.